Well, today I want to pick up from where we left off last Lord's Day. And if you recall, last week we began to unpack a little Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. There Paul writes this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, originally when I thought to address these verses, I was going to do one sermon, but ended up spending a lot of time last week establishing mainly a one point that I felt was very important before we go right into these verses. And the reason I felt it was important is this. In verse 17, as we just heard, Paul tells us to watch out, or your translation may say to mark out, certain type of people. And then he tells us to avoid these people, to stay away from them. And he says this in stark contrast to what he said in the previous verses, 1 through 16. There, Paul commends so-and-so. And then he praises that person and praises this person for their labors. And he says over and over again to greet that person, greet this person. And then even at the beginning of verse 17, he tells the Christians in Rome to watch out for those who cause divisions. Watch out for those who would disrupt our union and our communion. Watch out for those who would divide people. You can clearly see the passion that Paul has for unity for fellowship. But then he turns right around and says, avoid certain people. And if you notice, he kind of leaves it wide open. In other words, he doesn't say avoid them unless they're related or avoid them unless they're a good friend that you've known for many years, maybe from high school. All he says about them is that they cause divisions and they create obstacles. And so avoid them. These people could come from anywhere. It could even be someone you know and are close to. And so I thought, man, this command to avoid them could be a very difficult command for some people, depending on the circumstances. And then when you go on to hear what is the deciding factor behind Paul's command to avoid them, you may be tempted to think, well, Paul, that's just going too far. Because what is the deciding factor? Well, Paul's going to tell us in verse 17 what that factor is. But even before we get to verse 17, we should be able to pick up on what is driving this unity and communion that Paul is so passionate about. When you read that long list of names, verses 1 through 16, and you see greeting after greeting, you'll notice there are two phrases that he repeatedly uses to describe many of these people. Verse 3, he talks about a fellow workers in Christ. Verse 7, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are in Christ. Verse 8, my beloved in the Lord. 
Verse 9, a fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, one who was approved in Christ. Verse 11, those who are in the Lord. And verse 12, workers in the Lord and one who worked hard in the Lord. Over and over again, Paul points out how these people are in Christ or in the Lord. And I think that's extremely important. It's very telling. Why? Because that phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, in the Lord, is Paul's way of pointing out to us what his union and communion with these people is grounded in. Clearly, this bond that he has with these people is grounded in their bond that they have to Christ and the gospel. Or to say it another way, it was Paul's relationship to Christ that established the bond and relationship that he had to all these people. And so if he didn't have that bond to Christ, he wouldn't have this relationship to all these people. But we not only see that in verses 1 through 16 with the words in Christ and in the Lord, we see it here explicitly in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. In other words, for Paul, the basis for this union and communion that he is so passionate about is doctrine. It's teaching. Teachings about what, Jason? Well, I think it's safe to say that what Paul primarily had in mind is what he just laid out in the previous 15 chapters in this letter. Teachings of the gospel, teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation. And so if you were a little skeptical about that point being made from verses 1 through 16, Paul makes it explicitly clear here in verse 17. Greet this person in the Lord. Greet that person in Christ. Greet, greet, greet. But don't greet these people. Avoid them. Turn aside from them. Don't hang out with them. Well, why, Paul? Because they're trying to lead you away from what you have been taught concerning God, concerning Christ, and concerning the gospel. You know, as I was thinking about this more, I was thinking about Paul's life in particular and why this truth of being in Christ, which is a favorite phrase of his, was such a big deal for Paul. Think about his conversion for a moment. You remember how Paul's conversion came about? Do you remember exactly what was said by Christ? We read about it in Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he, could, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Now, isn't that interesting? In verse 1, we are told that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, not against Jesus. Jesus ain't even around at this point. He's already been buried, resurrected, and he's ascended to heaven. Nowhere to be seen. 
And yet Jesus did not ask Saul, why was he persecuting the disciples? He asked, why are you persecuting me? And of course, all he heard was a voice. He saw what was probably lightning from heaven. So Saul had to ask, who is this? Whose voice am I hearing? Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Calvin writes, this place containeth a most profitable doctrine, and the profit thereof is made manifold. For Christ showeth what great account he maketh of his gospel, when he pronounceth that it, it is, that it is his cause, from which he will not be separated. Therefore, he can no more refuse to defend the same than he can, can deny himself. And then John Gill wrote, For the union between Christ and his people is so close that what is done to them is done to him. So there's not only a union between Christ and the gospel of such that Christ can no more refuse to defend the gospel than he can deny himself. There's also a union between Christ and his people that is so close that if you do something to his people, you've done it to Christ himself. And of course, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one from another. Talk about being a divider. He will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now remember, this is the judgment, final judgment. Thousands of years of history have gone on where Christ is in heaven. He's nowhere to be seen. So then the righteous will answer him, verse 37, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you in, uh, sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or, or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Is it any wonder why Paul would place such an emphasis on being in Christ and in the Lord as he greets one person after another here in Rome? 
This emphasis makes total sense because one of Paul's very first lessons that he ever learned as a Christian was this mystical union that exists between Christ and his people. You know those words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, had to just stay with him forever. For Paul, from the very moment he's converted, understood the importance and significance of this mystical union. And so I often wonder just how much thought and care we give to this. When you stop and consider the friendships that you have to those who are closest to you, what's that friendship rooted in? What's it grounded in? You know, some may say, well, I'm close friends to so-and-so because we both have a passion for sports. We just really love the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Why, I don't know, but just kidding, JP. Or some may say, well, I'm close friends to so-and-so because we have the same sense of humor. We're goofy. We make each other laugh. Or some may say, well, I'm close to this person because we work together. People ground their relationships in movies, music, Sports, food, hobbies, the list is endless. We could go on and on. But beloved, there's a danger in all of that. And why do I say that? Because what will you do when that person whom you just love hanging out, hanging out with and goofing off, or you love to go to for advice or whatever, becomes the person Paul describes in verse 17? What are you going to do? Consider your closest friends. What is central to those relationships? Are they the type of friends who are constantly encouraging you and moving you in a direction of sound biblical teaching and living? Or are they the type of people who are constantly raising doubts and questions in your mind and confusing you over what you've been taught? Now, I can anticipate someone hearing all this say, well, Jason, I, I don't know. That just sounds a lot. I mean, when I read this here in Romans, I think Paul's just got these wild, crazy false teachers in mind. They're just traveling around. They're just hell-bent on ruining people's lives. And yet it seems like you've taken this and made it into a lesson about friendships. I don't get why you're taking that angle. Well, I'll tell you why I take that angle, because of verse 18. There, Paul says a couple of things about these people that leads me to think that he doesn't have the wild, crazy, and obvious troublemakers in mind. Right after he says avoid them, he says, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, last week, we already spoke to the issue of neutrality. I'm not going to get into that. You either serve the Lord or you hate him. So, you know, we're not going to do that again, but I just find it interesting here that Paul has to point that out to them. I mean, that he has to point out that such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ seems to suggest to me that perhaps some would struggle with that question. Again, you, you just take the most loudmouth, belligerent town drunk who's always fighting and arguing. It just seems fairly obvious that such a person doesn't serve the Lord. I mean, I can't imagine some drunk, I'll serve the Lord. You know, even non-believers looking at him like, you're crazy. It just goes without saying. 
But here Paul has to say it. Paul has to point out, you may think this person loves Christ. You may think they're serving him. But you better be careful and understand that this person doesn't actually serve Christ. So these people that Paul had in mind are people who are going to claim to love God and to love Christ. But in reality, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And again, what exposes them as such? What they believe, what they teach, and the fact that they're trying to pull you away from sound biblical doctrine. You know, beloved, there are a ton of people who you know, on first contact, seem to talk a great game. And they appear to be very sincere and caring. But you've got to get beyond the surface. You have to start digging. You have to start asking difficult questions. You have to figure out what's really going on here. And if you have a person who is constantly straying from sound biblical teaching and encourage you, encouraging you to do the same, if you have a person who just can't seem to stay fixed in one place, it doesn't matter how sincere and nice they may sound on the surface. They're being tossed to and fro by the waves tells a different story. Paul wrote to the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for, building, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head unto Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the contrast here. People who are constantly wavering, tossed to and fro, people who can't seem to stay focused and fixed, these aren't mature people. These aren't people working to attain unity these aren't people working to build up the body in love. True unity, true love, true maturity, true fellowship comes how? It's rooted in what? Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after, like, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There it is again from Paul. It starts with Christ. 
In receiving the gospel, you are united to Christ. We, quote unquote, learn Christ. We hear about him. We are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And this is all in contrast to the unbelievers who walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And so we see that maturity, stability, truth, righteousness, holiness, it all first comes from knowing Christ. He is central. But then what does that produce? What does that union and communion with Christ lead us on to? Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You see, it's all a package deal for Paul. You simply cannot divorce truth or doctrine or teaching from our union and communion to Christ. And we cannot divorce our union to one another from our union to Christ. And therefore, we cannot divorce truth from our union to one another. See, these people here in Romans 16 of Paul's warning us about, they think you can. These people think that you can serve the Lord and serve one another devoid, devoid of truth, devoid of sound doctrine. But beloved, they're deceivers. No matter how good they may sound on the surface, you better be on your guard concerning them. Speaking of how they sound, how they talk, consider what Paul goes on to say in verse 18 of Romans 16. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now there's some very interesting words that Paul uses here in the Greek and it confirms for me once again that Paul does not have the wild, crazy, belligerent nutcase in mind, but rather people who you may least expect. The word that the ESV here translates as smooth talk, prestologia, hope I said that right, it just means eloquent. It's describing the style of a person's speech. Their speech is pleasant. It's friendly. The word just by itself isn't a bad thing. And then there's the second word Paul uses. Most translations will translate it as flattery. The Greek is eulogia. Now, <clears throat> let that sound familiar to you, eulogia. Eulogy. What is a eulogy? Eulogy is a speech where you're praising someone who has passed on. Well, here, eulogia means just that. It means to speak well of someone, to praise someone. A blessing. Again, it's not a negative word in and of itself. Young's literal translation puts it this way, and I call upon you, brethren, to mark those who the divisions and the stumbling blocks, contrary to the teaching that ye did learn, are causing... And turn ye away from them, for such our Lord Jesus Christ do not serve but their own belly, and through the good word and fair speech, they deceive the hearts of the harmless. Now here again, we see the danger in all of this. Just like with the concepts of love and unity 
sow good works or good words in fair speech would seem to be a positive thing here. I mean, what's wrong with good words? What's wrong with fair speech? What's wrong with praising people? Is praising someone a problem? Is using our language well a problem? Well, in some cases, no. But for here, for Paul, it's a major problem. Why? What's the deciding factor? What's going on here in this text that makes good words and fair speech a bad thing when good words and fair speech don't necessarily have to be a bad thing? Well, the deciding factor, again, is back in verse 17. It's doctrine. It's teaching. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. The reason why this warning is so important and crucial, the reason why you must make studying doctrine, studying scripture a priority, is because there are many who depart from sound biblical doctrine. They're heading straight for hell, and they will take others with them. And how are they going to do it? Through pleasant, friendly speech that is presented as a blessing. John Piper says, false teachers don't get a following by being rough and harsh. They get a following by being nice. Just take two examples from history. Arius, who died in 336, and Socinus, who died in 1604. Both of these men denied the deity of Christ. Parker Williamson describes Arius like this. He says, now here was a bright energetic, attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, singing sea chanties in dockside pubs and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful. This was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that history does not bludgeon us into belief, but we are seduced. And then another writer describes Socinus like this, he was a gentleman. His morals were above reproach, and he distinguished himself by his unfailing courtesy. Unfailing courtesy was remarkable in an age when even the great Protestant leaders, Luther and Calvin, would use vile street language when arguing with their opponents. This means that it will seldom be popular. This is Piper. This means that it will, it will seldom be popular to resist false teachers in the church because they are almost always perceived as bringing a blessing and speaking with winsome words. They're gentlemen. And Paul says the innocent are carried away. Hence he says, watch out for them and avoid them, end quote. In what is one of my favorite articles on this topic of false teachers, William Plumber writes, False teachers are those who teach false doctrine. Grievous wolves are they who make havoc of the flock of Christ. Such often gain advantage over weak but godly men by teaching with zeal and clearness some important truths. These are intended to put a coat of sugar over the poisonous pills they administer. Modern perfectionists pray much about holiness and thus persuade men that their system cannot be bad. 
while yet they are sapping the very foundations of good morals. Antinomians often speak with the power of richness and freeness and the sovereignty of divine grace, and yet all the while they are turning the grace of God into a license for sin and making Christ the minister of sin. Men who exalt human nature commonly urge that they are trying to give correct notions of the dignity of man and to awaken a deep sense of responsibility, wokeness. By thus mixing error with truth, men hope that their false doctrines will pass unsuspected. Let no man be deceived. The nature of falsehood is not changed by mingling it with truth. Counterfeit money often has good bills mingled with it. Others are led away by false teachers because for a while they maintain good morals and seem to manifest great devoutness of mind. Of Pelagius, Augustine testifies that he, quote, always maintained a character of fair and decent morals, unquote. And that until late in life when he began to teach his fatal errors. His reputation for serious piety had been great in the churches through which he had extensively traveled. The amount of zeal displayed by false teachers is sometimes prodigious. They compass sea and land to make one proselyte. They often put to shame the lukewarmness of some who hold the truth. We were just talking about this last, last meeting with the Muslims and how devote many of them are. They often put to shame the lukewarmness of those who hold the truth. Their devoutness sometimes seems astonishing. In them, Satan seems transformed into an angel of light. I have never seen more seeming warmth in religious worship than among some who deny the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. They are both sanctimonious and fanatical. They have fire, but it is wildfire. Let us follow no teacher merely because he is moral, zealous, and apparently devout, end quote. That's Plummer, and to which I add, let us follow no one merely because of how good and pleasant and nice he sounds. And once again, I got to think back to the garden. I mean, how far do you think Satan would have gotten if he just kicked the gate open, come stomping in the garden, hey, you, moron, get over here. I don't think he would have gotten very far, far at all. Nobody's going to put up with that. But we will put up with pleasant speech. We will put up with niceness, praise. Again, think to your own relationships and conversations. Do you have those relationships where you often come out confused in doubting things that you have been taught? And you tend to lean in that direction, not because you've done any serious thought about it, not because you've sought counsel from those who are more experienced than you and you've given and have given it serious thought, but because the person who's telling you things, these things is nice, just pleasant to be around. You find yourself at times thinking, well, I tend to lean in this direction because this person is just so nice and pleasant. Man, this other guy, he's rough. Rough on the edges and skits under my skin sometimes. Now, listen, I'm not trying to justify anyone being rude or just being a turd to people, even when they're 100% correct. That doesn't justify being a jerk. So, beloved, you better 
be careful. Because it's so easy for us to equate being nice and being pleasant with being right. And that's where the danger lies. Again, listen to Paul writing to those in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Isn't it interesting here that Paul brings up his skills in speaking? Paul was not considered a great speaker by many people. In fact, if you go back a chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, verse 7, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's Christ, let him remind himself, just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I would not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with, with letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his body presence is weak in his speech of no account. For his speech is contemptible. Paul may not have been the best of speakers. Might have been a little rough on the edges. But beloved, he certainly was not unskilled in knowledge. And as we have repeatedly pointed out here, truth is the deciding factor. So what do you put more stock in? The truth of what is spoken or the manner in which it's delivered? And how would you even be able to assess such thing if you have downplayed the study of doctrine, of theology? And so lastly, Paul says in verse 19, Romans 16, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You know, if you find yourself struggling in this area, then what's the answer? Well, Given everything we've said, I think the answer should be pretty obvious. But now here in verse 19, it's explicit. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Again, this is an obvious point that we have implied all throughout these last two sermons. But let's just make it explicitly stated right now in case you missed it. There is, for Paul here, a body of doctrine that needs to be known that needs to be understood, that needs to be embraced. And it can be rejected by others to their peril. There is a standard. It's not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. There is right and there is wrong. And it is absolutely crucial that if you are to avoid being crushed along with Satan in the end of days, 
that you know and take seriously that standard of doctrine. Earlier in this letter, Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. To Timothy, he writes, 2 Timothy 1, this is the verse our pastor uses for his series. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Beloved, make no mistake about it. There is a standard of teaching. There is a pattern of sound words, not a pattern of words. It's not just words. It's words correctly understood, correctly interpreted. There's a body of doctrine that is to be known and that is to be embraced. And there's a very real and present danger to ignoring and rejecting that doctrine. Even if you sound all nice and pleasant in doing it. Again, Plummer writes, there is such a thing as truth in opposition to error. Both Solomon and Paul speak of good doctrine, which is the same as sound doctrine, so often mentioned by Paul. If a doctrine is true and sound, it is good, whether it pleases or enrages men. In Scripture, good doctrine is once called the doctrine of the Lord, once the doctrine of God our Savior, once the doctrine of the apostles, once the doctrine which is according to godliness, twice the doctrine of Jesus, thrice the doctrine of Christ. In Scripture, good doctrine is synonymous with such terms and phrases as truth, the truth in Christ, the truth as it is in Jesus, the truth of God and the word of truth. It is elsewhere called the form of sound words and sound speech that cannot be condemned. It is just the opposite of what the Bible calls strange doctrines, the doctrines and commandments of men, the doctrines of devils, damnable heresies, the traditions of men, lies, falsehood, vain deceit, and deceptive philosophy. So that it is clear that there is such a thing as sound doctrine and such a thing as strange doctrine. There is doctrine according to godliness and there is doctrine contrary to godliness. So, beloved, be on your guard. Study. You must study or you will easily fall prey. And again, Plummer, for we are bound to distinguish true and false doctrine. The scripture requires us to test all things, to hold fast to that which is good and to test teachers by their doctrine. 1 John 4.1 this can be done. We can know the truth. The doctrine of the Pharisees and the doctrine of the Sadducees never did agree 
with the doctrines of Christ. The doctrines of the Nicolaitans subverted the doctrines of the apostles. Light and darkness are not more opposite than truth and error. Nutritious food and deadly poison may look alike, but they can be and they must be distinguished. Again, Paul writing to those in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I think that's a direct parallel to what we see here in Romans. Be wise as to what is good, innocent as what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Here he says, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil, and now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Beloved, what's a priority in your life and in your relationships? Is it Christ? Is it the gospel? Is it sound doctrine? Is it teaching? Is it truth? Or is it something else? If it's something else, you better be on your guard. Because you can be easily deceived and manipulated. And I think that's so important, even more so now than ever, especially in this culture, in our society today. Let us pray.